Chief of the Air Staff talks candidly about Syria, Russia and recruitment. The biggest challenge we have is that we are aiming to recruit extremely highly qualified and talented people. A multi-billion pound black hole in defence budget, we look at how that will affect future spending decisions and the state of President Trump's unconventional union. The head of the RAF has spoken to Sitrep about the big challenges ahead in a rare interview. Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier said his forces are ready to defend the skies against increasing pressure from Russia and that they must remain adaptable and sustainable. The Chief of the Air Staff also spoke of the challenges of recruitment. I met him at RAF Northolt as the RAF prepares to celebrate its centenary. It's great to be here at RAF Northall because this is such an important part of our history and it's our actually last uh, active Battle of Britain station. So I think that helps us uh, remember that RAF 100 is about commemorating that past. It's also a year when you can really promote what the RAF has got to offer to potential recruits. Recruitment, uh, we know, has been a big problem for the armed forces and the recent report says the RAF is around 10% down on meeting its targets. What, what's going wrong? What's the problem? I think the biggest challenge we have is that we are aiming to recruit extremely highly qualified and talented people and those people are in demand uh, across uh, the wider uh, sectors of industry and business. But overall uh, recruitment is, uh, is going well and I'm particularly pleased to say that uh, this year our recruitment will include 20% uh, will be women and we have uh, more than doubled in the last few years uh, promotion uh, of minority ethnic coming into the RAF. Indeed, defence spending obviously is very much in the spotlight at the moment. A defence review is ongoing. What will be your focus? Well, my focus will be, as it always is, is ensuring the RAF, which is exceptionally busy in operations, that we continue to provide air and space power worldwide in pursuit of those operations. As I say, we're extremely busy, we're extremely successful, so that continues to be my focus. Operationally now, obviously, Operation Shader is one of your very big commitments. How long do you think the RAF will continue being involved in the bombing campaign over Syria and Iraq? Well, the easy answer is for all, as long as it's necessary to get the job done. Uh, we've been doing those operations and Operation Shader for three and a half years, an extraordinary level of success, extraordinary level of activity uh, across the breadth of air power capabilities uh, that I have. We are succeeding. Daesh has lost the vast majority of the territory that it once uh, owned. Uh, they are on the back foot and what we need to do is keep up the pressure until ultimately they are defeated. If you look at recent RAF operations uh, from Operation Elemy over Libya and then Operation Shader, uh, it's been very much focused on the RAF and from the air. Has that changed the way you think of the future for the RAF? Have you learnt things from these sustained campaigns? Well, I think we've learnt a lot, um, and not just, if you like, the tactical lessons, but what it has demonstrated to us is, firstly, the ability. We need to have that ability to sustain operations for as long as it takes. They're, they're not short-duration uh, conflicts. It's demonstrated we need that full breadth of capabilities. Every part of my air power capabilities have been employed in an op shader and more widely. And we need to have that flexibility and agility, responsiveness 
um, to you know, adapt as the operation changes and also to be prepared to do other things. I mean, in the middle of Operation Shader, we had Operation Rumen in the Caribbean and a very great proportion of my air mobility force was suddenly 4,500 miles in the other direction. We also see uh, the RAF a lot in the news because of what it does to uh, accompany uh, Russian aircraft when it gets close to our airspace and also uh, when we see them getting close to international airspace where they shouldn't be in Eastern Europe. I mean, I know that perhaps the pilots who are involved may actually enjoy the experience of putting their training to the test. Is it an irritant or, or do you see Russia as a real threat? When Russian aircraft test our uh, air defences, as they've done most recently, two weeks ago, flying within sort of 30 miles of uh, Aberdeen off the coast, um, we're there and uh, ready to respond. It is our principal mission. It's what we train for. It's not an irritant. It's the job that we do. And in that light, I was delighted last week to be up in uh, Saxaford in the Shetland Islands, where we recommissioned one of our air defence radars um, to give us that uh, ability to see far to the north and enhance further the uh, protection of the United Kingdom. RAF 100 is a time to look at over the whole history of the RAF. If you were to name your three favourite aircraft, what would they be and why? I don't think I would... I would name my three aircraft because there have been so many aircraft uh, throughout the RAF's history and right through to today which are absolutely central to everything that we have achieved. But I have to say, in, in my heart, uh, my first frontline aircraft is the Tornado. Uh, I continue to fly the Tornado. The Tornado will be uh, finally retired from service. How often do you fly the Tornado? Um, as often as I can. Really? When <laughs> um, was the last time you flew one? Uh, two weeks ago. Really? Uh, two weeks ago today. Uh, so, one of the perks uh, of the job, I suppose. <laughs> well, it, it's, for me, it's part of uh, staying in touch with what we ultimately are as an Air Force, which is delivering air power. That was the head of the RAF, Air Chief Marshal, Sir Stephen Hillier. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here. Some interesting points he raised there, Christopher, and not least about the challenges of recruiting the right, highly qualified people. Oh, I thought the best thing was the fact that he's still driving Still tornadoes. flying the tornado, yes. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned an April. <laughs> saying, give me, a, give me a, a, a frigate, I want to drive it around the Solent. Well, they actually, actually they, it was in, in, interesting that he, he's very much the ethos of, of keeping in touch, uh, keeping on the shop floor, which was why he was at RAF Northolt as there's well. There's another part of this, and that is that the, in the RAF, the RAF is a, small, is a small part of the forces, it's a small unit, and that's the way it, it works. It does everything. The idea that you've got the boss turns up and said, I'm going to have a drive around and see how many seagulls I can get or, or whatever it is he does, uh, is somehow the guys would say, yeah, that's right. And not going to be particularly... It's very important. It's, it's this whole ethos of, 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 the, um, of the Royal Air Force. Coming back to the thing about recruiting, um, they're 11, 11% down on what they hope to get. Uh, the Navy's about the same. The Army's around about 30% down. That puts it in some context. He was talking about the need for technical branches, though. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with getting technical branches is that uh, um, BA Systems and all these other organizations like that that are in this business, they offer far more. They offer a different sort of lifestyle. Um, and uh, they offer a longer career pattern uh, as well. It's not, so, it's not so fixed. And, of course, they offer no discipline whatsoever. But if you look at the, look at the latest uh, advertisements for the Royal Air Force, mm. what's important about them, they're all tech-based. They're not looking for pilots. You can get them anywhere almost. Mm. They're, they're all tech-based. They are all uh, male and female, 
man and woman. It's the same sort of job. You want you know stick some stick some uh, uh, engineering qualifications in front of everybody. They can walk into the RAF tomorrow. That's where it's going, and it ought to be going that way. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, Donald Trump's first State of the Union address. Are we now seeing a more presidential president? The Ministry of Defence is potentially facing a £20 billion black hole in the armed forces equipment budget, according to the National Audit Office. The public spending watchdog said the £180 billion 10-year equipment plan was unaffordable and did not represent a realistic forecast of the costs it will need to meet. Unless urgent action was taken to address the issue, it said projects would face delay or cancellation, jeopardising the force's operational capability. Well, General Sir Richard Barons is a former commander, Joint Force Command. I asked him why he thinks this hasn't been resolved. Neither the Defence Review in 2010 nor the Defence Review in 2015 really were able to reconcile that we want to buy more equipment. Indeed, we must buy more equipment uh, than we want to provide money for. And the gap over 10 years, according to the National Audit Office, is now just shy of £21 billion over 10 years. Why can that gap not be closed? Why is someone saying, hold on, this is not working? Well, it's not working for the, for the reasons the report uh, sets out very clearly. First of all, in constructing the MOD's equipment programme, the MOD makes some assumptions about the costs of the things that we must buy. And over time, those costs inflate and the money isn't there to cope with uh, that increase. And in some cases, the, the costs are underestimated because it's quite hard to estimate the costs of something you may buy over, over 20 years. Uh, that's made worse by the fact there are some things the MOD needs which is not yet budgeted for. And, and the report points out that we want to buy five Type 31 frigates at about £250 million each. And those costs are not in the current figures. Then it's made worse by the fact that the exchange rate, uh, particularly between the pound and the dollar, has got worse. And this might add perhaps four billion pounds to the to the problem. And the final challenge is we always assume that in order to find the money to pay for equipment, we can make efficiencies, i.e. cuts in in how the MOD operates. And some of the assumptions about those those cuts that can be made have just not been delivered. And that's because some of them are just unrealistic. And you add all of those things together, you end up with an equipment programme that will cost a lot more, £21 billion more perhaps, than the money that's currently being made available. In light of everything you have just said, is it possible to make a 10-year equipment spending plan? Well, it's essential to make a 10-year equipment spending plan, but it's also essential to make a a realistic one that recognises that there are things that the Ministry of Defence and the Armed Forces must have that will cost a certain amount of money. And no matter how much you would like it to cost a lot less, it's just not going to happen. And we also need to remember this is just about equipment. We're talking about perhaps 40% of the defence budget. Uh, Everyone in the armed forces knows there are challenges with infrastructure, so housing and technical accommodation. There's not enough training going on, not enough logistics, not enough engineering support, not enough people. And all of those things now need to form part of the review that the Secretary of State for Defence has announced. And there are many calls for the MOD to get more money from the Treasury, but why should they if they continuously get the sums wrong? Well, some of this getting the sums wrong 
might be willful. So, so perhaps over time, people have put items into the equipment program and, and understated the costs. I mean, this is known as entryism to get a thing started that's then really hard to cancel. But the, the bottom line here is we've reached a point where we have stripped so much out of defence over the last 25 years or so since the end of the Cold War that there's really nothing that you can cut that doesn't absolutely really matter. So we need to have a stop and a think and recognise that defending this country, its vital interests abroad and our homeland, means spending a lot of money and, and trying to get away with it by spending way, way too little just, just doesn't work. That was General Sir Richard Barron's Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is still here. Christopher, um, that point he made about the the willful underestimation of the cost of things is quite shocking, isn't it? Shouldn't be. They've always done it. I mean, they've done it since 1936 and the reconstruction of the Navy. So that's fine. That's, well, it's not you fine, but they've it always in. done it. Uh, basically, the, in, the Defence Ministry is in a very difficult position because it doesn't do economics in the same way. For example, it uses the right, it has been using has been using the wrong exchange rate for dollars versus sterling, pounds sterling. So that books up the price or doesn't put up the price. Uh, and you, you've got some like inflation. Inflation in, in defence uh, economics moves at a different rate than defence... Uh, economics of the, of the national rate. What's the biggest problem here? And it really is a huge problem that the Ministry of Defence shows no signs of being able to cope with. It understands what it is, but it can't cope with it. We are now reached a point, certainly within NATO, certainly in the United States, of how we think of war. In other words, you, it, this we're talking about with this report is about how you're sort of ordering stuff. Ordering stuff for the last war, I'm afraid. We're going to have to start thinking in new terms, things like anti-access, area denial. There's a new strategy that's evolved by the United States called the uh, Third off Offset Strategy. This involves robots, it involves cyber, it involves all things like But are like you this. saying we're at a watershed moment in terms of the way we think about war that, that we've never we faced are, before? Uh, we did face it, yeah, once before, the other way. In 1991, when officially communism sort of fell apart, we said, OK, we don't do state-to-state -state war anymore. And this is what we do, things like going to Afghanistan and uh, counter-terrorism, etc. We have reached now, and we will have reached by July of this year, a public statement on this. It will be publicly talked about at, at, at NATO that this whole concept of how we think that war might happen and what we, how we take part in it, that is going to change. And it's going to be the biggest change in the concept of warfare from the West point of view than we've, that we've ever seen. Yes, yes, Donald Trump has delivered his first State of the Union speech focusing on the U.S. economy and proclaiming a new American moment. If you believe in America, then you can dream anything. You can be anything. And together, we can achieve absolutely anything. He said renewing America's nuclear capability remains key. He wants to keep the detention centre at Guantanamo Bay to deter terrorists. And he's promised to keep the country safe by prioritising military spending. Around the world, we face rogue regimes, terrorist groups, and rivals like China and Russia that challenge our interests, our economy, and our values. I am asking Congress to fully fund our great military. Well, joining us is Michael Stathis, Professor of Political <laughs> Science at the University of Southern Utah. You're laughing already. Why, Michael? <laughs> 
Well, uh, to begin with, uh, I, I guess I have to ask a question, uh, especially of Christopher. Do you want to talk about the State of the Union, or do you want to talk about Donald Trump's speech? Any relationship between the two is purely coincidental. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Christopher, do you want to answer that? Well, at one time, the president used to send it over into a letter, didn't he, to the Speaker of the House? Um, you know, I- it's funny. Uh, go ahead. No, I've gone um, ahead. I- go on. I just talked about that in class uh, on, uh, on, on Wednesday. Um, the first two presidents actually went to uh, Congress and spoke. Jefferson is the, pr- the first president who just delivered a letter, and that was the practice until Woodrow Wilson, and uh, he changed it. In fact, when he showed up, uh, uh, he was not expected, and uh, uh, both houses were in a state of shock that the president had walked uh, all the way to the Capitol building to give a uh, State of the Union address. Now, since then, of course, in modern uh, uh, technology, this is a huge opportunity for the president because he's not really speaking to Congress. He's on television. He is speaking to the people of the United States, particularly his own uh, base, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, 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 the world. It is a, uh, it's a glo- it's a, it's truly a global podium. So, so, Professor, what did your class make of his tone? Was it more measured? Did they like it? Well, I hate to tell you this, but uh, in most of my classes, the students didn't bother to listen, oh. even though I uh, I urged them to. So uh, uh, you're going to have to hear my should comment. should be talking about the this. state of education, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, you, know, you push so hard, but you, well, sometimes you have to back off. Well, listen, his tone was, uh, this was not as... Uh, has been uh, called, I think, over there, uh, Twitter Trump. Um, uh, This was a very measured uh, reading of the teleprompter. Uh, And when I say measured, uh, I mean slow. Uh, he uh, he dragged this out um, uh, and tried to make sure that he read the speech written by uh, someone else. He had nothing to do with writing this speech, but he made sure that he gave the speech um, uh, as clearly as he uh, possibly could. And uh, I hate to say this, but to his credit, um, he more or less stuck to the script. That must have hurt. I tell you, tell, tell you something, Michael. This man. Um, has got to keep this up until November, when the yes. uh, when the midterm elections take place. He can do what he likes after that, but he has got to get the numbers. The first rule of politics is to read the numbers, and that's what they're talking about now. So, Michael, specifically, what do you think about what he said about the military? Well, uh, you heard it. Uh, the, uh, the the little soundbite that you uh, um, uh, played just a couple of minutes ago, uh, that was about his comment uh, on the military. There wasn't much uh, uh, detail. Uh, possibly the, uh, the, 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 the most detailed comment he made is when he took credit for uh, the bombing of ISIS uh, in Iraq and, uh, and Syria, mm. which uh, What do you think when you, really... heard, when you heard that? What did you think? Well, he he basically made one effort uh, after a terrorist act to drop, uh, what, the mother of all bombs. Uh, Beyond that, uh, the program that's been going on uh, is the one that began under Obama. 
uh, and um, uh, uh, it has worked uh, uh, very well. Uh, of course, Al Raqqa has fallen, Mosul has fallen, uh, and uh, ISIS. Uh, 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 well, I don't want to be too uh, predictive here, but uh, uh, ISIS right now is on its heels, uh, and so. Uh, but and he he clearly took credit for that in the in uh, in the speech. Mm, Christopher, a brief mention of Russia elsewhere on foreign policy. He warned North Korea on no- nuclear weapons, but not as usual fire and fury language. Uh, it certainly wasn't the one that he gave at the United Nations last year. But I tell you something around about in uh, around about July. At the NATO, in timing with the NATO summit in Brussels, I think that he will be up on his Twitter again, because the Americans. Oh, absolutely! Are, because the Americans then will show how a powerful they are, because they're going to probably test a new missile system, which is non-nuclear, and will outpace nuclear weapons. And if that happens, then Korea ought to get worried because there is no restriction on whether that weapon would be fired because mm. it's non-nuclear. Michael Stathis, what didn't he say that you might have liked to have heard? Oh, well, there's an awful lot that I would have liked to have heard. Right, uh, goodbye. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, in the interest uh, okay. of balance. <laughs> Uh, uh, in the interest of balance, well, that's uh, sometimes difficult uh, to say. I I really wish he would have left um, uh, Guantanamo Bay alone. Uh, mm. This is an embarrassment. That's exactly what he's he, doing, isn't you it? Mean he, he, he's he, leaving yeah. it open. He didn't have to mention it, did he? Mm. Uh, no, in fact, uh, this is kind of old news. But uh, it, it, it's, our, it's we've known for months that he's going to uh, uh, keep this uh, uh, camp going, and uh, it's characteristic of the way he's looking at the war uh, against terrorism. Which, um, uh, Christopher, you hit the nail on the head earlier. The nature of warfare, uh, even against terrorism, is changing at a pace that, uh, well. People of my age are hard. It's difficult to keep up with it. But uh, this is a pivotal moment. Trump was right at the beginning of the speech, uh, talking about how this was a vital moment in history. Whether it will be an American moment or not uh, remains to be seen. But um, uh, things in technology are changing so fast. Uh, uh, Twitter here is uh, is almost passe. Um, uh, you know, we we laugh at it, but uh, you know, it's it's a means of communication that uh, is uh, is already almost. Well, my granddaughter uh, is ahead of me on the computer. We hoped for some encouraging comments about in- immigration. We did not hear them. Uh, we hoped for uh, more uh, in the way of true uh, efforts of co- uh, uh, cooperation, both for, with the world community, uh, but also within the country. Um, and uh, what we are hearing is hyperbole, uh, uh, nothing really in, uh, uh, in any kind of detail. Now, we should also note, Go ahead, please. Right, uh, just on the edge of balance, and to some extent anyway, I would give Trump 7 out of 10, uh, consider 6, but I would give Trump 7 out of 10 because he is scoring on the issues he said he would score, and all the instinctive sort of uh, prejudices against him is not standing up. And I will tell you something else. The dream of America, the American dream, this week, Theresa May in China says... uh, he, she recognises that what Trump is doing is good political vaudeville because mm. she's talking about the British dream. And there you are. There is the road to electoral and, success. And there we'll leave it for the moment. Professor Michael Stathis, <laughs> thank you for your time thank, today. Thank you so much. 
Now, speculation is mounting over who will become the next chief of the defence staff. The Prime Minister makes the decision and an announcement is likely in the next few weeks. General Lord Richard served as head of the army, then as CDS for three years between 2010 and 2013. He was known as being one of the most outspoken chiefs of recent times. He's been speaking to Charlotte Banks about the role which he said should include the authority to command the three service chiefs. As Chief of Defence Staff, you're suddenly mixing with literally the most influential and uh, important, depending on one's view, uh, people in the land. Um, and, you know, going to state banquets and uh, meeting presidents and prime ministers and actually representing your country at a very senior level. But, and I mean, it's a slightly technical point. I believe the Chief of Defence Staff, particularly now that the armed forces are smaller, should command the armed forces rather than have command vested in the single service chiefs. That you are obviously the senior guy and that gives you great influence and you have ready access to the political class but at the end of the day you can't order the, the services to do something and that leads to inefficiency and sometimes confused priorities. How much power do you really have as Chief of the Defence Staff when it comes to the big decisions about defence? Um, relatively little. You know some of the stupidities that we all saw in Afghanistan will not have been because of military men taking them, but because uh, politicians interfered in our domain. And I remember saying to David Cameron, you know, um, a year in the CCF at Eton does not qualify you for taking tactical decisions in Afghanistan. I said, even I don't take those decisions. Got good people there should be taken. And he sort of laughed, uh, but he went on doing it. <clears throat> so how much influence do you... Does, do you have in that role over the Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary? Are they coming to you for advice? Are you going to them and giving them advice? How does it work? Well, roughly once a week there'd be a National Security Council, which was a formal meeting. Uh, the only man in uni or person in uniform, still men uh, at this stage, um, uh, in the room um, is the Chief of Defence Staff. So when it comes to advice on defence and the armed forces, they naturally and rightly would turn to me. And then, I mean, sometimes I'd be in number 10 three or four times a week. And then routinely a lot of meetings with the Secretary of State for Defence, some more than others. Um, so it depends on personalities to a degree. I would, if I had a problem, I'd go and knock on the door and say, I need to talk to you. You've got to rather enjoy it, actually. And I quite enjoyed it going to have a row, particularly if I felt that it was very important. Can you tell me a bit about how the CDS is selected? <laughs> Do you think there's ever an element of selecting the one who might be the least trouble, for example? Yes. Um, I, this is in my book, so I can tell you this. I was um, uh, selected to be Chief of Defence Staff. Um, not on the basis of a recommendation from across Whitehall. I know that. The consensus within Whitehall was that David Richards, quote, was too much his own man, Mr Cameron. You'll want to choose someone else who's not potentially bolshy. Uh, but to do him much credit, 
he, he, he decided I would get the job and I got it. The, the current Prime Minister has, I understand, but I'm absolutely, I may be wrong here, but my understanding is, is uh, conducting some sort of interview process and uh, that um, the primary candidates, and I don't know who they are, uh, will be interviewed, even though she might know them to a greater or lesser degree, and she will then make a decision. Now, of course, infantry, frontline combat roles are open to women. How long do you think it would be before we see a, a female CDS? I think it's a, it's a matter of time. It's going to happen. Uh, we've now got a, a, you know generals or equivalent in the three services. So, I mean, it's going to happen. And I'm the father of two daughters, and I think if, if she's there, you know, let's see her. Go for it. Uh, it's going to happen. That was the former Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord Richards. Christopher, what do you think of what he said? Yeah, I do... Interesting that, you know, he's there he is saying publicly, I never said in his book about how much he has to deal with the Defence Council sometimes three or four times a week because of any whatever issue is important. What is interesting is ties in what we were talking about before is how we think of war now or how we're going to think of it in the next 10 years. The CDS, is a, is a, its job is to explain the military to the political and if you if you wish that way, cross Whitehall and do that he is going to become far more commander-in-chief, which includes being an active commander-in-chief of the three, uh, Chief of the General Staff, First Sea Lord and, and Kaz. This becomes interesting because in time of war, that effectively he, what he has to do is to take command of them, but he also has to continue this operation that he walks across, defends the Defence Council, is the only one in uniform, he reminds them, this is the reality of it. Now, you go back to a story when you've got a, a, an audit report which says that these, can't, these guys can't do even a shopping list mm. for the military that they want. The 20 billion, 20 billion out of sync. He's got far more of a job of getting into uniform and going and telling the Prime Minister what she thinks of the world. You're a betting man. Who's your money on? Uh, General Messenger, Royal Marines. On that note, we'll leave it for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments, or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the show as a podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate Jabot. I'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. RAFG.